Join me now as we uh, enter our time of the sermon, and we will uh, read uh, a few selections of scripture. Our first uh, selection comes from Genesis chapter 3, and this is verses 15 through 16. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Our uh, next reading today comes from Galatians. Uh, This is chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to his promise and our sermon text uh, comes from uh, song of songs and uh, i'll be reading a few passages first from chapter 3 6 through 9 who is coming up from the wilderness like a pillar of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense from all the merchants powders look it's solomon's bed Sixty warriors around it of the warriors of Israel, all of them welding the sword, trained in battle, each with his sword on his thigh, out of terror in the nights. A palaquin did King Solomon make from Lebanon wood, its post he made of silver, its padding gold, its curtain crimson, its inside paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out and behold, O daughters of Zion, King Solomon in the diadem with which his mother crowned him on his wedding day on the day of his heart's rejoicing. And then from chapter 4. You have captured my heart, my sister bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one bead of your necklace. How beautiful you're loving, my sister bride. How much better you're loving than wine and the scent of all your unguents than all perfumes. Nectar your lips drip, bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the scents of your robes like Lebanon scent. A lot guarded, my sister bride, a locked well. A sealed spring, your branches, an orchid of pomegranates with luscious fruit. Henna and spikenard, spikenard and saffron. Uh, cane and cinnamon with every tree of frankincense. Myrrh and aloes with every choice perfume. A garden spring a garden of fresh water and streams from Lebanon. Arise, O north, and come, O south. Blow on my garden. Let its perfumes flow. Let my lover come to his garden and eat its luscious fruits. And our last reading is from Song of Songs 7. Sorry, the wind. I am my lover's, and for me is his desire. Come, my lover, let us go to the field. Spend the night in the henna. There I will give my love to you. Let us rise early in the vineyards. We shall see if the vine is in flower, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranate trees have budded. There I will give my loving to you. 
The mandrakes give off fragrance at our door. All luscious fruit, fresh picked and stored as well. I have laid up for you, my love. So uh, we return again to this uh, fascinating but difficult book. Uh, this is our third week of our study in the Song of Songs. And uh, my plan is to do another two weeks. Uh, but as we look at our passage today, I want to remind us of some of the key points that I've been trying to make as we work through this difficult but fascinating book. First, uh, we have to respect the fact that this song is poetry. And we have to use different rules than we're used to if we want to understand the song. The song is much more interesting in creating an impression on our heart, our emotions, as well as our minds, than it is with giving us a precise fact, or a narrative, or a story, or a well-constructed argument. Second, and I think this is important uh, here, not just for the songs, but for understanding scripture as a whole, the song is not an isolated piece of literature. Like all literature, it exists in a context. And the context of the songs is the thought world of the person who wrote it. This is true of the rest of the Bible as well. Exodus does not make sense without Genesis. Freeing and oppressed people is not the purpose of Exodus, but rather Exodus is the story of God fulfilling a promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis. Only then does Exodus take on its full significance. If we were to read Proverbs in isolation of the rest of the Bible, we would be led to believe that the world is simple and ordered and works out according to a formula. If we were to read Ecclesiastes in isolation, we would probably be driven to depression at the hopelessness of a world enslaved to sin. And so we need to read these in context. Song of Songs, too, is in conversation with other parts of the Bible. And we have specifically uh, stressed the connection of the songs to the story of the garden in Eden. As I have said over the past few weeks, the best way to think of the Song of Songs is a commentary on Genesis 2 and 3. And one of the ways that the songs accomplishes this is to use a literary technique that you probably remember from high school, uh, English class. It's called illusion, not illusion, but illusion with an A. So illusion is a figure of species often found in poetry in which reference is made to another work. Uh, often it's not directly cited. Uh, we aren't dealing with uh, a reference like you might make in a research paper where it would be made explicit. Poetry is artistic. And though it makes references to, to other sources, it does so carefully and uh, not as, uh, not as uh, 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 boldly. Now, we come across illusion all the time. Uh, so now is the time for a pop culture reference, which is probably dated now. But uh, if, if, for example, if you're a fan like me of uh, 1990s Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, you'll know in Terminator 2, the first thing the Terminator says to Sarah Connor is, come with me if you want to live. And of course, since we understand the Terminator franchise, we know that that's a reference to the first Terminator movie. And so we grasp the significance. If we don't know anything about the mother movie, then we don't really understand what's going on. And so the key to understanding the Song of Songs is to see how it uses illusions to make its point. So before I do that, I want to look back at the garden story because that's where most of uh, the references from the song come from. 
And I think it is really neat that we are studying this book and outside because it really gets this idea of nature and, and, and going back. There's so many references to cedars and we have two cedar trees right here. The kids have been playing and building forts in the cedar trees uh, uh, for the last few weeks. So uh, maybe this takes on an added significance. Um, but I wanna look at the story of the garden and specifically as it relates to the man and the woman. And we are going to look at some details of that story because I think uh, there have been multiple misconceptions that the church uh, has perpetuated over the years in Genesis 2, uh, specifically concerning the woman. In addition, uh, we are going to find plenty of echoes or allusions of this material in the Song of Songs. So if we look at the story of creation in Genesis 2, the man is formed from the ground. Okay, and he is given life by the breath of God and then placed in the Garden of Eden. He is given the task of working that garden. The garden is the land is described as a wilderness until God provides it with water and forms the creature to work the garden. However, there's another problem that Genesis 2 tells us about the man is alone, and God observes that this is not good. Something is missing from God's creation. And so God shows himself to be concerned, not just with life, but also with wholeness. God is concerned to solve this problem of the man. Just as the wilderness was incomplete and needed water to prosper and grow, the man needs something to become complete and flourish in the world that God has made. Therefore, God decides he will solve the problem of the man's isolation by providing a companion. So God first creates the animals. And like the man, the animals are formed from the ground and given the breath of life. The language used for the formation of the animals is the exact same language used for the formation of man. And so you would naturally assume that if God intends to create a companion to correspond to the man, this is how he would go about doing it. However, we find this is not the case. The man does not find a creature corresponding to him among the animals. Interestingly, we read that the man is tasked with naming the animals. Naming in the ancient world was an act of power, demonstrating his superiority. And so man demonstrates his superiority by naming the animals. However, it's very significant that does not result in fulfillment but rather the man becomes aware of his loneliness. Neither the animals nor his dominance solve the problem of his incompleteness. So now God removes a rib for the man. And actually rib is much too specific. In Hebrew, the word is just side. The woman is then formed, not from the ground though, like the plants, the man, and also the animals, but from the side of the man. Also, unlike the plants or the animals, God gives no directive placing the women under his authority. The plants and the animals are directly under the man's authority. Not so with the woman. Her creation is unique, and she stands apart from everything else in creation. And this is in keeping with God's intention to make a companion for the man. 
companion, I've used that word here because it's a much better translation than what we are usually given is servant or helper. The Hebrew word that I'm translating here as companion is used in many places to describe God. God is Israel's companion. And the result of this new creation by God is poetry. Remember what the man says when he first sees the woman. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The man's poem speaks to the equality of the man and woman. It is true he calls her woman, but strikingly the, the Bible leaves out the, the, the typical formula, calls her name. The man calls her woman, but he does not name her woman. In every other instance in the Bible, the formula is call plus name. Here, something different is going on. The woman is taken from the man. And in some people think that take means that the woman is derivative. But man is also taken from the earth. And yet he's given dominion over it. And my point here is that nothing in this account implies subordination. Uh, nothing in this account implies inferiority on the point of the woman. Instead, what we have is unity, solidarity, mutuality, and equality between the man and the woman. The man and the woman are both given the garden. And in the story, the garden is a place of abundance and prosperity. Eden means paradise. The garden is a place where the relationship between God and humanity is close and intimate. It's also a place where the relationship between the man and the woman is close and intimate. And that intimacy is captured by that kind of confusing phrase that they are both naked and unashamed. So my point is, is that what we have in this creation story is a picture of life, of wholeness and harmony between God, humanity, and creation. And it is this life that God intended for humanity. Now, we know how this story goes. It ends in tragedy. As a result of the disobedience to God's command, the couple are exiled from the garden to the wilderness. The man and woman's relationship is broken. And as the story goes, it should come as no surprise. That is the case because after God interrogates the man, he totally throws uh, the woman under the bus. Remember what he says to God. The woman... The one you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So much for bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And as God reveals the consequences of of their actions, we come to our first reading from Genesis 3. The woman is told her desire shall be for her husband, but he shall rule over her. In other words, she will long for the unity that was between the man and the woman in the garden, but the man will not reciprocate. Instead, he will attempt to dominate her as yet uh, as the same and, and as with his domination of the animals, it will not bring him wholeness. Desire is a negative one here. In the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 4, Cain is warned that his sin is crouching at his door and sin's desire is for him. It's sin's desire to imprison Cain that leads him to murder his brother Abel. And it's that same desire that fractures the intimate relationship between the man and the woman and leads them in a state where now they are now naked and ashamed. However, 
the great part of this story and the good news, the gospel here, is that amid this judgment after the fall, God promises that sin will be defeated and that the serpent's head will be crushed. And the serpent's head will be crushed by the seed of the woman. And so there is a promise of redemption. Along with the effects of the curse, it can be now be reversed. And that would include the restoration of intimacy between the man and the woman. The result of the defeat of sin and death is a return of humanity to wholeness. What was intended for God in creation. Now, having that story in our head, let us look... Uh, as we let us look as we read for the Song of Songs. And what I want us to do is pay careful attention to some of the echoes from this story. If we look at chapter 3, our scene from chapter 3 of the Song of Songs begins by picturing King Solomon and his wedding party arriving to meet his bride for the wedding ceremony. Uh, he's carried aloft in some kind of fancy chair. Uh, this is uh, some ancient kind of pavilion sedan thing that kings would use uh and he's carried by his uh, royal uh you uh the splendor of solomon's arrival is described in the song in all its magnificence using the kind of poetic language we would expect in such a work solomon is described using terms to suggest abundance and prosperity but here's what i want us to what i want to point out Notice where Solomon's wedding party is coming from. His wedding party is coming from the wilderness. How strange, really, to include that detail if this is just a poem about a wedding ceremony. Unless, of course, it's an illusion. So in the Bible... We find that often the wilderness uh, is uh, described as an empty, a disorganized space. It's incomplete. It's not prosperous. It's not flourishing. In fact, it's the opposite of a garden. In the scripture, the wilderness is always a negative place. It's empty. It's without form, as the world was before God began the act of creation. The act of creation was a solution to the wilderness. The wilderness is used to describe absence from the presence of God, of testing and difficulty. When Jesus is tempted, it takes place in the wilderness. The wilderness is the place of exile. Yet it is also from the wilderness here that Solomon comes to unite with his bride. And so we see this reversal of coming out of exile. As, he, as Solomon comes to this uh, marriage ceremony. And then listen to how the woman is described in her passage from chapter 4. In verse 11, the man said, Her lips drip with nectar and honey and milk are under his tongue. Where have we heard the phrase milk and honey before? Famously, that's how the land of Canaan, the promised land, is described. It's an allusion to Israel where Israel is uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, verse 12 said she is a walled garden with a fountain. Now, the interesting thing here is that uh, when we read descriptions of the temple, the temple is meant to has uh, lots of structures with garden imagery. In fact, it features pomegranates carved into its walls. It has a fountain in the center. Uh, 
So uh, it also has scents like frankincense and myrrh that were used along with the sacrifices. And my point is that both Canaan and the temple were meant to be pictures of Eden. It was places where humans came together with God and where they met. It was a way where the, the wall between the, uh, the broken creation and the, the, the heavenly realm had been partially restored. And so all these illusions are pointing us toward a restored relationship of wholeness that was originally found in paradise and that are illustrated partially in Canaan in the temple. Now, as we continue, notice how completely it has reclaimed the original vision in the garden. In this chapter, we have a picture of the couple expressing their love to one another in the fields and vineyards. We have wholeness in the relationship. In fact, I would say that this is like an extended version of the man's song in Genesis when he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's such a remarkable picture of completion and intimacy that it requires this over-the-top poetry and song to get across how incredible it is. Now, as we look on in our passage, in chapter 7, verse 10, the woman says... I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Here we find another allusion to the garden story, this word desire. In Hebrew, the word is teshukwa. And the only other place in the Bible besides here that we find the word teshukwa is the passage we read from Genesis 3 and the Cain and Abel story I talked about in Genesis 4. So the word desire is used here because it's wants, the, the song wants to make a clear allusion to the story. But there's a difference. Here, the desire is a positive. In other words, desire has been redeemed in the love between this story of the man and the woman. Even more so... We also have a return to the equality between the man and the woman that was present in the garden. Twice in this song, we hear the famous line, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Notice in this sentence that neither the man nor the woman has served power over the other. They belong to each other. There is now mutuality and harmony (coughs) that once was a feature at the beginning of creation. The man's desire has now become the woman's delight. So again, what we have is this song giving us a picture of a world redeemed in the imagination of the poet. Song of Songs has painted us a picture of life as it should be, rather than the broken relationships characterized by desire, power, and domination that we all too often observe. But the good news is that in Christ, this picture has become a reality. The seed of the woman has defeated the seed of the serpent. And as the new creation has been launched by resurrection, it breaks into this world. And so we can reclaim this vision. We can become what we were meant to be as humans, complete and whole. And so much so that we find Paul again imagining what the world looks like when it becomes free of the curses. One thing I've learned from this study is how interesting it is. We think of Paul as being such the dour theologian. And yet, 
I have found him to be the most imaginative of theologians. He sees the new creation and he believes in his reality. And he sees what it what kind of implications that has, not for the future, although it is that, but also in this real world. In his letter to Galatians, he's dealing with a group who wishes to subjugate others and use their power to dominate and exclude. This group has created divisions and factions in this church, and Paul will have none of it because Paul knows this is not appropriate for people of the new creation. Instead, Paul pictures a world in which all the barriers have been broken down and unity between people has been restored. For Paul, if you are baptized in Christ, there can no longer be Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Paul again uses his imagination just as the psalm, song, uh, uh, the the poet in the Song of Solomon does, to see beyond the breakdown in relationship between man and woman. And he sees a restoration, not just a man and woman, but all human relationships. It's a truly radical vision, but it's a vision that's been fulfilled at the cross when Jesus welcomes the thief into paradise. Paradise, another name for Eden. And praise Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. So this brings us to the message of the song. One of the profound points the song is making is that marriage is a picture of restoration. Marriage is a return to the garden. Marriage is a picture of the promised land. Marriage anticipates the restoration of the world. It is the opposite of the wilderness where God is absent. Here again, we have unity and wholeness. It's returned to the state of intimacy of, of, of the man and his wife in the garden where they are naked and unashamed. And just as the song alludes to a bigger story, so marriage alludes to a bigger story. Our marriages then are a picture of the undoing of the curse. It's a picture of restoration. It's a picture of the fall corrected. It's a gift, a down payment God has given us of the new heaven and new earth. It's the opposite of the wilderness where God is absent. Our marriages should reflect this. They should be like the relationship of the man and the woman in the garden, characterized by intimacy, exclusivity, permanence, and unity. Far from merely a set of rules of morality or a legal arrangement, it should present a picture of a world restored, the curse undone, and the promised land. It should act as a powerful sign to the world of God's plan of redemption. It should be repairing the brokenness of the world. Now, that's one message here from the songs we can take. But let's say that there are others here. Let's say that you're not married. Or maybe you're like 12. And you're thinking, marriage is a really long way off. What's this sermon got to do with me? And first, I want to say something specifically to the girls here. I feel strongly about doing this because I feel too often the opposite has been said in our churches. And so I want to make it very clear. God's design for you is not to be subordinate or inferior. Don't ever let anyone tell you that that is biblical. Boys and the rest of you, that means you have a responsibility to uphold this vision of equality. Anything less is part of the curse. It's the job of the church to restore and redeem the world, not to reinforce its behavior. The gospel is about freedom. Now, second, 
Paul sees the implication of the resurrection as not just in a restoration of the relationship between the man and the woman, but a restoration of all types of relationships. That means just as our parents should model the resurrection of their marriage, we should all model the resurrection in our friendships by breaking down all the boundaries that separate us. Status, wealth, gender, race, and all the factions that divide us should be overcome in the name of Christ. The picture of the new creation is about people from every nation and every tribe and every people and every tongue coming to Christ. That means that we can all be part of this incredible vision that is put forth in the Song of Songs and that Paul declares in Galatians. Our lives are to be characterized by wholeness and this results from equality, not domination. Love one another as I have loved you is the commandment of Christ. Let us work to make this love visible and by doing so, we imagine resurrection.